Thank you for joining us today on this beautiful, sunny Friday on a very not live episode, which is a change for us in the last few weeks. So good listeners of Podcast Land, thank you for downloading our podcast and for staying apprised of Oklahoma politics. I'm joined, we're gonna, we've got a, a just a barn burner of a show for you today because it's been a barn burner of a week. Uh, specifically, Monday was just packed with information and stuff going on. And uh, we're going to talk through as much as we can get through in the next 45 to 55 minutes. Uh, joining me today, of course, is Bailey Perkins. Hello, Bailey. Hello, Andy. And Scott Nelson. Hello, sir. What is up, man? How are you? I'm well. Scott, I will be honest, I'm still on an emotional high following our watching of the new West Wing episode last night. It's not new, it but so the, it was a new episode of a bunch of older folks on stage reading scripts from 20 years ago, right? That's basically... <laughs> is it weird that I want to watch it again tonight? No, I'm with you. <laughs> I, I may have to sign up for a free trial of... Uh, of HBO Max just to watch it again. Um, it it was, was very good. It was just, it was everything that I wanted it to be. And it like makes me so happy to see that Martin Sheen at like whatever, however old he is, like, man, he still got it, you know? And you know what? If he, if, if he can still act like a president, then like surely someone could still be president at that age. Right. Like, well, that's, I mean, either way we will, I don't know how old Martin Sheen is, but either way um, our president will be, one of, if not the oldest um, president to be elected, I I will Martin, say Martin I, Sheen is eighty years young. So he's how old's Biden? Seventy seven. Biden is seventy seven, and President Trump is seventy four, I believe. Birds of a feather. There, I I will. I think the highlight for me, honestly, of the show, it was great. But I really liked the intro music with uh, W. Snuffy Walden playing the intro on the guitar. Like that was just a, the vibe was cool and it set the tone for the show. And as you very astutely pointed out during our watching, that's how he wrote it in the first place, right? It was on the guitar. Yeah. Which so is anyway. like just super cool. When you think about like that, at least what I think of as a, a pretty like iconic orchestration of that opening, the the opening credits. And then you, th- you hear it on an acoustic guitar, which is how Snuffy wrote it. It's like, it's just so cool to hear it that way. Is it is it weird if I ask you guys to only refer to me as Snuffy from now on? Is that a no? I'm on board. <laughs> All right, I think well, you, let's... Should, you should change your you should sc- change your screen name on the uh, right right here on the on the on yeah. the streamyard. You should uh, just it's instead of Andy Moore, just it Snuffy. On the yard, so right. What if my Twitter was at Snuffy OKC? You should totally do that. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't, I'm going to. Uh, well, I, it's. It's too much work. It's too. Uh, a former employer of mine has been going through a rebrand this week, and none of their screen names match their new company name now, which is funny to me. But that's how you want it, right? That's right. That's <laughs> how you want it. All right. So I'm going to read um, a series of headlines real quick that I think all happened on Monday, except for the last one. And then we'll go back to the beginning and talk through them. But this week in Oklahoma politics, Representative Ryan Martinez from Edmond announced plans to file legislation to block the governor's plan to move the public health lab 
from Oklahoma City to Stillwater. Numerous legislators have voiced opposition to the governor's plan to privatize Medicaid. The governor appointed uh, former Senate pro tem Brian Bingman as his new secretary of state and in the same press release accepted the resignation of his finance secretary, Mike Mazzi. Attorney General Mike Hunter assigned special counsel to investigate Ep Epic Charter Schools. The State Board of Education is giving Epic only 60 days to pay back $11 million. The statewide virtual charter school board began the process of terminating their contract with Epic. All of that happened on Monday in about four hours. And then later in the week, the governor, like yesterday, I think the governor formally appointed three state agency directors um, and that were interims and now they're official full timers or permanent. And then we'll note this, but I think we're gonna hold off on talking about it. Uh, and, and that something is whatever the hell is going on with Oklahoma County government We've we've referenced this, I think, in a few episodes and next week, like, let's for real talk about it. I will make an outline of a, a timeline of the last, I don't know, 12, 18 months of what's happened over there. But earlier this week, it started out with uh, Kevin, Commissioner Kevin Calvey. At last week or this week, it filed a lawsuit on behalf of the Board of County Commissioners and the Oklahoma Second Amendment organization um they it was the county commissioners suing the jail trust and so because of that commissioner calvey was the defendant the petitioner and the attorney of record so he was he was suing himself and he was the attorney representing himself and suing himself which i don't think you can do and yesterday uh the district attorney just threw it out, right? Or, well, so he didn't throw it out. He he filed a motion to intervene, basically saying, um, "Hello, actually, <laughs> um, I I am the district attorney and the only person who can represent like uh, the board of of county county commissioners, county commissioners is the DA. Like, and you can't have a like he's the, he's the official right. attorney for right Oklahoma County." Right. Like you can't just be like, I am suing the jail trust on behalf of the county, like as a private citizen, like he like, uh, uh, you know, D.A. Prater is saying like that that's not allowed. And for, you know, I am, as we've said many times on the podcast, not a lawyer. But when this came out, I like this, this came up on my Twitter feed. And I mean, I think within 30 seconds, I had a I had a uh, a text from a, a local attorney who was like, um, no, no. You can't. You can't be both plaintiff, defendant, and attorney of record. Like right. you can't. You you can't do all. You can't do all the things. You can if you're at home playing school by yourself in your backyard, right? Like that's the. Right. This is like what my son does, where he, you know he's like, I'm gonna be the referee and the player, and you know whatever else. I'm like okay, that's. It's like Calvin and Hobbes. It's like Calvin Ball. But you know what they say about local government, right? It's like the laboratory for democracy. And so, mm. I mean, it was an interesting attempt for an experiment. That's exactly right. And, you know, in an alternate timeline, the district attorney might not have stepped in. And then what would have happened, right? We would just let this happen. Uh, anyway, we'll come back to that. That would have been a really weird precedent to set. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I mean, surely something else would have happened, but we will come back to that later. Um, let's start with 
the public health story. So the public health lab. Uh, so to, I'll set it up and then um, Scott, I'll kick it to you first. So I think we may have mentioned this last week that the governor announced his plans to build the Oklahoma Pandemic Center and Travel Stop or something in Stillwater, right? There's a long center for excellence and innovation. I'm you saying Travel Stop. Yeah, I'm being snarky because the Derek Zoolander Center for kids who can't read good and want to learn how to do other stuff good too. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right. I oh man, that joke gets me every time. I um. I have a bias against people who use the words innovation and excellence. Not just the governor, anybody who throws the word innovation around all the time drives me bananas. But I digress. Um, Scott, tell us a little bit about what he proposed and and what the opposition is to this proposal. Yeah. So essentially what he wants to do is move the public health laboratory from where it's currently located at the state department of health on the Oklahoma uh, health sciences center campus. And he wants to move it to the OSU campus in Stillwater, which is, which is kind of an interesting thing. So um, the first, the first thing to understand is like, what is the public health laboratory? So the public health laboratory is, it's like the, it's the, the center in Oklahoma where like our infectious disease kind of testing and monitoring, all that stuff takes place, right? So like you're talking about like coronavirus testing in the early days of the pandemic, like that's where the testing was being done. You know, when um, samples, you know, if there's someone who is suspicious, is suspicion for uh, another like, you know, rare but communicable disease, those sometimes those samples are sent to the public health laboratory. Um, this is where tests get developed. They, they, they do all kinds of stuff. Um, one thing to know about our public health laboratory is that for a while it's really been in um, not great shape. So a few years ago, it was actually at risk of losing its accreditation. Um, that would have been something that required it to close if it lost accreditation. Um, lots of folks at multiple levels of state and uh, state government have been saying for years that like this is something that we need to address, right? Um, that we need to that we need to put some more investment into our public health laboratory. So the idea of taking some money and putting money into the public health laboratory is not like a weird thing. The thing though that has a lot of people kind of going, "What? Like, does this make sense?" Is the idea of putting the public health laboratory in Stillwater. Now, this is nothing. This is not an OU OSU thing. This is nothing against Stillwater. Um, but the public health laboratory right now, where it's located, it's minutes from I-35, it's minutes from I-40, it's minutes from I-44, it's near uh, a major airport. Like, it's the central location of the public health laboratory is one of the things that allows it to serve the entire state, right? And it's near um, the Department of Health. And it's near the Department of Health, yes, right? Like, and so, the like, that's that's one reason why it is where it is. And so the idea of moving it to Stillwater, which for better or for worse is even though it is a, you know, Stillwater obviously has a major university, you know, Oklahoma State is a major research university, like it's, it's not, it has nothing, nothing to do with the fact that it's like, you know, OSU, it's the fact that it's in a rural community that doesn't have those things, right? Like you don't have easy access to a major highway, you're 45 minutes off I-35 and, you know, um, significantly farther from any other major transit. There is an airport in Stillwater, but it's a regional airport. It's not an airport that like serves you know the the whole country the way that like the Will Rogers Airport here in Oklahoma City is. It's also not centrally located, um, and it's also not near all the other state services and 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 um, the other kind of medical services 
that you need to really effectively run a public health laboratory. Now, the governor said that one of the reasons he was going to move it to Stillwater is because, and this this is not untrue, one of the things that, and the surprises people that the public health laboratory is engaged in, particularly in a state like Oklahoma that has a large agricultural sector, is like monitoring and dealing with disease outbreaks among animals, right? So, you know, cattle um, would be probably the, the biggest one. And so the governor was saying, by putting it in a more rural location, it would better facilitate that. Um, I'm not enough of an expert on that kind of like epidemiology to like, I mean, I'm not an expert on any kind of epidemiology, but I'm specifically not an expert on that kind of epidemiology to know if like being in a more rural location would make that much sense. You know, if you were going to move it anywhere, I would think that moving it to like the Oklahoma State Health Sciences Center campus in Tulsa, the OSU, which is the, the OSU medical complex in Tulsa, like that would make more sense. But again, you're getting away from the central location, which is one of the things that allows um, allows it to do its to, allows the laboratory to do its job. Um, Dr. Ed Rhodes, who um, was the was he was at the Oklahoma State Department of Health for like 40 years. He was the chief medical officer. He recently retired. Um, he. He actually, um, he this was on Facebook, but he wrote a pretty, a pretty lengthy and I thought really insightful post about why he felt like this was um, really, really not a good idea. And if there's anybody who would know, it is Dr. Rhodes, because this was kind of like his deal. Another thing, you know, you're talking about like dozens and dozens of employees, some of them with decades of experience who live in the Oklahoma City Metro, who do you have to quit their jobs or move? So that's one thing, right? Um, we've also talked about the... Um, the location just not being centrally located, having easy access to transit would be would be another. Another thing is facilities, right? You can't just open up a, like you can't just open up a public health laboratory or any kind of laboratory in like an empty warehouse, right? Like you have to have very specific um, very specific construction materials. The building has to be constructed um, uh, under very like uh, very stringent specifications. Like you can't move anywhere. Yeah, it's got to be federal guidelines, you know, it, depending on what kind of materials you're going to work with. I mean, like, just look at the coronavirus outbreak, right? Like, one of the things that is is not true, but was um, rumored at the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak is that, there, that, that where this came from was a lab in Wuhan, China, that was working with materials that they weren't graded to work with. I want to emphasize, that's not, there's no evidence that that's the case. But you can't just, like handle certain like really communicable diseases in a regular laboratory you have to have certain kinds of facilities and safeguards and and protections and so you have to like kind of build this custom facility right so and Scott, there's an expense to sustain it over time too oh yeah right like this yeah i mean it's, so it's it's you know and and then lastly there's it's it's not at all clear representative uh emily virgin or i should say leader virgin who's the leader of the democrats in the, in the house um she wrote this week um it is not even clear that the governor has like the authority to do this, like that he can just be like, oh, hey, I've decided like we're moving the public health lab. Um, Representative uh, Martinez, who represents Edmund, has actually filed legislation to say that like to prohibit this and to make it explicit that the governor doesn't have that authority. And then lastly, he wants to finance this using like $24 million of CARES Act funds. And I mean, I don't know. I'm just going out there. Since we have record hospitalizations, um, record ICU admissions, and record case numbers, it seems like maybe we could spend the 24 million on something else um, related to the actual pandemic. But you know, that's just me. Well, didn't also like the governor said he plans to have it moved by the end of the year, which is I 
if you had to move your house before the end of the year, like that's not a small task, right? Much less the public health laboratory. Yeah. Like it, it well, yeah. To, to Scott's point, there's certain aspects that take time to craft and make sure that it's meeting federal regulations. Yeah. And I mean, that's almost like blinking your eyes and making something happen, which is nearly impossible for this type of complicated project to build from right. scratch. I mean, inspections, right? Like that, if you're going to build a house in the next two months, it, unless you are extreme home makeover and you've got things squared away well in advance, it's not going to happen, much less a public health laboratory. And also, I, I will take umbrage on a... On a small person level. I love it when people take umbrage. The the press release about it, it well, uh, first of all, there's no debate that we need a new public health lab, right? Like it is old and out of date and the health department is moving to a new building like this week. Uh, and that's also much needed. But the, some of the equipment is like 40, 50 years old. So, and the building itself is probably yeah. way older than that. Yeah, I have some really good photos. I was looking back through my Instagram this week, actually, at photos I had taken in the health department building of like, there's in the basement, I used to have to take uh, blood samples to the public health laboratory for HIV confirmatory testing. I would walk them over there from our office. And then you drop them off, you go around to the back to the loading dock, and you go in through that back door. And there's you go to the public health like window and then this metal cart outside with a piece of paper taped to it that says rabies cart, do not remove. It's just like, it's a very, you're like, Oh, okay. So you, you put dead animals here, right? Then <laughs> you wheel them around. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, no, it's this, like no one is arguing that the current state of the public health lab is like good or acceptable. Right. But anyway, the governor's press release was like, we are going to build this to prepare for the next pandemic. And and I just could hear the public screaming, what about the current pandemic, right? Like this lab does not help us meet the needs that we have today of the people that are dying today and the, our state's response. And the CARES dollars are ideally designed to address the current pandemic. And if it happens to help us prepare for the future, yes, but like it just... It, it was a maybe it's just an issue with messaging. I don't know, but it just felt a little uh, misguided to me. Well, and it's also like this: <clears throat> we're going to create this center for like excellence in pandemic management. I mean, I guess you know one question I had was, okay, well, when you create the center and they make recommendations in the next pandemic, like issuing a statewide mask mandate, are you going to listen to those? Or are you going to blow those off too? Like, right. are you are you going to listen to the to the excellence in pandemic center, like are you going to treat them the way that you treat the current recommendations, or or is, do you know what I mean? Like it just, it's just it it just reeks of such cognitive dissonance. And it's like, do you really believe that we are leading the way in how we respond to this? Right. Like, like has Oklahoma done something that makes you think that we're like the gold standard in responding to COVID? Like, well, oh, I also wanted to add to your point, Scott, about whether the governor even has the authority to make this unilateral move. Uh, because our listeners can remember back to March. Yeah, it was the end of March where we were having discussions on Chipa, right? And he had authority um, back then to make the decisions on behalf of the state in a unilateral way 
on where funding was going to go and different things. But our legislature didn't extend that power after um, May. And so that is an interesting question on the legalities of him being able to say, we're going to create this entity and this is what we're going to do with the money without legislative input. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the governor, you know, we sh- maybe we should give governor Smith the benefit of the doubt. It's not like he has a track record of doing things unilaterally and then later finding out he doesn't have the authority to do that at all. I mean, you know, it's not like he makes random decisions and then gets taken to court and, you know, loses nearly every time. So maybe he deserves the benefit of the of the doubt. <laughs> right. That's a sarcasm for new listeners. So <laughs> He's, there's lots of air quotes going on. You just can't see them. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of pushback against plans, the governor's had. I still like do feel bad for the governor because he's had a lot of big ideas that have just fallen flat or been met with very stiff resistance from other members of the. Uh, legislature, most notably. Uh, And so the other thing that's on the similar vein is, you know, we are moving closer. We have expanded Medicaid um, and the governor, true to his word, has followed through with his plans to privatize Medicaid, right? To do a move to a managed care system, which Oklahoma has tried to do many, many, many times over the last 20 years. And it has fallen through, stopped, or been only partially implemented almost every time. Uh, but recently they put out a request for proposal RFP um, for managed care companies to apply for this. But apparently the governor did this unilaterally and did not run it by or through the legislature first. Uh, and- Andy, it's a rarity that you see both chambers speaking in unison on an issue mm-hmm. and on this particular one you have the leaders of the public health committees and the healthcare committees raising concern from both the house and the senate so that's very interesting that a he left out the legislature but b you have both chambers saying um i don't know about this right yeah it was uh so representative marcus mcintyre who was on the program two weeks ago and uh, and Senator Greg McCourtney, who's also a friend of the pod, both had statements in um, in the Oklahoman story about this. And also uh, Senator Standridge from down in Norman had some pretty strong words where he was like this, uh, this his in, in Senator Standridge's uh, opinion, managed care is a bad idea, which I thought was a, a stark statement from a uh, pretty, you know, middle of the road conservative. Um, my impression of Standridge is that he is a, a bit of a budget hawk and yeah, he's a pharmacist also. So I think he has like a different level of understanding of this process. Well, and I think that makes his thought process even more unique about managed care because fiscal hawks typically lean to managed care Uh, from the perspective that it's supposed to have all of these immediate cost savings in healthcare. However, when you're capping the amount of money that can be spent per patient within a healthcare system, the big concern is that, is there going to be uh, the need for cost on the back end, you know, after certain procedures are skipped or 
medications are skimmed or whatever um, for a managed care health system. And so it's really interesting that as a person who is a fiscal conservative, for him to say that this isn't going to lead into the cost savings that we expect, because you can't just say, we're only going to spend this much on your medications and we're only going to cover certain services to give people the adequate care that they need. So there's a, a continuous theme of, will this lead to quality healthcare services or will it lead to furthering a current problem? Mm -hmm. This is one of those deals where, you know, it's like, look, I am, I am, I am not an anti-market guy, right? Like, I think, I think markets are, you know, in many cases, not every case, but in many way, in many cases, the the best way to efficiently allocate like goods and services and set prices. So, like, markets have an important role to play. But you can like worship at the altar of the like free market too much, right? And 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 this is and this isn't even really. A, that's, that's not even the right way to say it. This is this is worshiping at the altar of like business, right? That like that gives somebody a profit incentive and it always makes things better. So it, we we haven't actually said like what managed care is, right? So right now, if you have uh, Medicaid Sooner Care, right? Like you have it's your insurance. You go see a doctor. You buy you get a prescription. You know that provider bills Medicaid. Medicaid reimburses the provider, and that's that's there's no middleman, right? Managed care would insert a middleman where. If you're on sooner care, rather than getting service, like rather than um, going directly through like the state, like you're you would go through an insurance company, essentially a managed care organization, and the state would pay that organization a fixed cost to cover the cost of your health care. Right. And then that organization would then enter into contracts with, you know, drug makers, doctors, you know, whoever um, to provide you with health care. And the idea is that, like, let's say that, you know, the state of Oklahoma pays that managed care organization $5,000 a year to cover your healthcare costs. If they can get you healthcare for less than five grand, they keep the rest. Right. But if it costs more than five grand, they have to eat the difference. Right. Um, and, and that's how they make money. So their incentive is to provide healthcare for their beneficiaries for less than what they're being paid by the state. So they have incentive to cover fewer services. They have an incentive to pay lower rates, which then makes providers less likely to enter into contracts. Right. And um, the same thing applies to, um, medications, right? Mm -hmm. So there's an incentive to even not approve a certain medication because it could cost too much and not fit within this fixed rate. Right. And the idea is that by the, the idea here is by and this is like the kind of, you know, worshiping at the altar of business wet dream. Like the idea is that by letting a private company do this rather than the state of Oklahoma doing this, you're like automatically gaining efficiency because they're automatically more efficient because they're a private company and they're business people. And so that means they're more efficient. I mean, and that might make sense if Oklahoma had really, really high Medicaid administrative costs, but we don't. We actually have one of the lowest administrative costs in the country, right? So there's not like a ton of savings to be gleaned there, right? Andy, you look like you're going to say something. Well, I, I was going to say by adding in a layer to this, you are adding in administrative costs. Yeah, right. Like you're adding an additional layer of bureaucracy, which I feel like the governor's talked about the need to minimize bureaucracy. I don't know why we would add a layer here, but because that's like that's what you're doing. It. <laughs> right, private, private bureaucracy. <laughs> private bureaucracy is a private bureaucracy doesn't count, right? Um, <laughs> like if you look at if you look at Oklahoma, our Medicaid administrative cost is about three point seven percent of expenses. That was in twenty nineteen, and that's well below the national average. Um, and you actually, if you look at our cost per enrollee, 
2017, Oklahoma's cost per Medicaid enrollee was $6,852, which is lower than Kansas, Missouri, and Texas, right? Do you want to know one big difference between Oklahoma and, than, between Oklahoma and Kansas, Missouri, and, and Texas? No one? No guesses? What? Our costs are significantly lower, and all three of those states use managed care, um, and it costs them more money, right? Um, if you... Um, if if you uh, took their average cost of eight thousand nine hundred and fifty seven, like if Oklahoma's costs by using managed care were to increase to the regional average of the surrounding states who all use managed care, um, any idea how much that would how much sooner care would cost the state? How much more? How much? Eight hundred eight hundred and fifty three million dollars. Wow! Right, almost like, the bill. <clears throat> right, so. Um, and I feel like from the discussions that we've had, we don't have an extra billion dollars um, laying around. The other thing is a lot of the folks that are on sooner care in Oklahoma live in rural areas and managed care has traditionally proven very difficult to implement in rural areas for a lot of reasons. Oklahoma Policy Institute has a fantastic article on this. We can drop it in the show notes um, that you should take a look at that dives into this in, in a lot of details. But I think it's telling that um, I haven't seen anyone, including leaders of the relevant committees, from the governor's own party in both chambers, to your point, Bailey, who has come out and said that this is a good idea. Well, and Scott, like the population we're talking about are, are folks who are more likely to have heightened health needs, right? So if we're talking about people who may not have gone to the doctor in years and have allowed things to fester because they couldn't afford to see a doctor before, or they have some type of ailment because of not having the resources to have an adequate diet or to not be as mobile. Um, we're talking about those who are already going to uh, have the highest risk factors. And right. so if we were talking about managed care for the everyday, like healthier person who was wealthier, <laughs> that'd be one thing, but the, the population we're talking about will already have a high cost. Cause I, I think they even talked about later um, adding in uh, those who have a disability um, or some type of long-term ailment. And so, the costs are just going to naturally be high inevitably because of the population we're talking about. And so in theory, managed care, you know, helps to, to shape costs. But the reality is it's just expensive to take care of people on the back end when we really need to make sure that people have the resources to eat healthy food, to be able to be more mobile and other things. So that way, the cost for Medicaid won't be as high. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's one, of those, it's one of those things that sounds awesome, um, but isn't. <laughs> and so I will encourage listeners to read the story in the Oklahoman. It is not behind the paywall now. Uh, and we will link to it in the show notes um, for this episode. It is uh, a really, it's a pretty lengthy, not like a long form, but like a very thorough article that lays out, the case for, the case against, what happens in other states, um, and explains a lot about uh, managed care and has some quotes from, I mean, a, a number of people in the legislature. It's a really good article that I think gives a well-rounded understanding of the issue. All right. Well, let's uh, move Andy, on. I just thought yeah. about what I was trying to say at the end of what I was trying to, to what I was saying earlier. Mm -hmm. 
I think instead of a focus on managed care, I think the focus should be on addressing poverty. (laughs) (laughs) So when we address poverty, then we won't have to worry about reducing that cost of Medicaid through the lens of managed care on the front end. So, but anyways, that's just my, my two cents on it. No, I, you're, I think you're exactly right. I have long said that like, and I, and the data bears this out that there's almost no Medicaid fraud on the patient end, right? Like there is some on the provider end. That's a whole different story. Yeah. <laughs> the vast majority of Medicaid fraud is by doctors and hospitals. Because the sent- the system is set up to make it uh, somewhat easy for them to do that. Not super easy, but it's there's an incentive there for them to make more money, right? But for patients, there's not like there's not an incentive for patients. The Medicaid system is hard enough to navigate as it is, and to like stay on it and from someone who you know ran a medical clinic for more than 10 years like you are and per, prior to that was a medicaid billing provider when i was doing uh mental health counseling like patients are constantly being kicked off medicaid and having to get back on and it makes that alone makes the administrative burden much higher right it requires more staff to be continually monitoring people's medicaid status to make sure that they are still eligible and still approved so that you can get billed and it just gums up the whole system. So I could really go on for probably two hours um, on a, of just a, a rant about Medicaid and how its its current system um, already is difficult and that adding managed care would make it more difficult. But yes, sir. I, I won't, not today. Um, so in, in, a, in a non-contentious bit of news, also involving the governor. Uh, As we said, he appointed former Senate pro tem Brian Bingman as his new secretary of state uh, and also his secretary of finance, Mike Mazzi resigned. That was not wholly unexpected. As we've said previously on the podcast, you know, two years into the governor's term, it's expected that a number of members of his cabinet would be turning over, you know, two years in a high pressure role like this. It's pretty common for them to, to, uh, cycle out uh, and for new folks to come in. And I don't know that he's announced a new finance secretary, but um, I think this is a big grab, right? So Brian Bingman was a well-respected member of the legislature when he was pro tem. He has those kinds of relationships with the legislature and with the tribes um, that the governor needs. Uh, and he will be stepping in to fulfill the duties previously held by Michael Rogers, who also was a member of the legislature prior to his role as Secretary of State. Um, it's a it's a very different role than what we think of Secretary of State at the federal level, where it's primarily dealing with other nation states, right? Like that happens some here, which I think is probably the coolest part of the job to be the the Oklahoma Secretary of State and get to interface with international politicians. But they also do a lot of just intrastate negotiations with the legislature and with those other sovereign nations we have here in our state, like, like the tribes. And they have involvement with some election things for like verification of signatures and and different things. So Mm -hmm. it's almost like a a, a hodgepodge of, of responsibilities for our secretary of state. Yeah, they do all the business filing. So if you are starting a business or a nonprofit, you file all that stuff to the Secretary of State. Um, their website is really interesting. I've spent time on there from you know 
both sides starting businesses. Um, and, and then certainly when I was running, or I, I still am, but during the height of people, not politicians, we would talk to them frequently, um, dealing with signature collection and all of that. Um, so it's a very interesting office. I've asked some former members of the legislature if they could have any job in state government, what would it be? And almost everyone has said Secretary of State, which I think is very interesting. Not the light gov? No, they said that was maybe- Well, you don't have to run as Secretary of State. Right. Oh, uh, that's true, but like- authority and power for an appointed role. Mm-hmm. Light gov seems like it'd be pretty great. Yeah, I think they both are seem like good gigs, right? So yeah, the light gov, you're just campaigning for four years so that you can run for governor is, is the joke at least that everyone makes. So, well, our uh, hats off to Secretary of State, Brian Bingman, good luck in your new role. I'm well, then hopefully in this go around with the governor filling these new positions that he'll find individual people to serve in those roles. I'm just not sure was Secretary Rogers overwhelmed with the responsibilities of being an advisor and Secretary of State and Native of uh, Native American Affairs Secretary. And I think at one point he was an Education Secretary, right? And so yeah. he had a lot of responsibilities in one administration. And so hopefully um, now Secretary uh, Bingman won't have all of those different responsibilities, and he could just focus on being Secretary of State. Yeah. I think he is also, I think he's picking up some of those other duties, but I don't know. Well, I guess we'll find out. All right. Well, let's uh, maybe spend the next 15 minutes or so, kind of the rest of the episode, um, talking about Epic. Uh, ooh, but first, before we go on to Epic, we'll end with Epic. But first, um, we mentioned earlier, three previously interim state agency directors are, have now been made permanent, right? So they are uh, the Oklahoma Department of Juvenile Affairs, Rachel Holt, um, who is the wife of Oklahoma City Mayor David Holt. And she's been working with the agency for a long time. I think before she was their general counsel Mm -hmm. and has been interim executive director. That was the official exec. So, yeah. And I think she's a tremendous asset over there. Everyone and everything I've seen, everyone's like, oh, was super excited about her being named interim director. And I think it was kind of just assumed she would be made permanent. So that's good. Um, Also, um, uh, Lance Fry at the State Department of Health, who has been, that's been a revolving door to some extent. Um, The previous interim director was not confirmed by the Senate because he lacked, was it that he'd lacked the academic credentials that was required? That is correct, yes. So um, is it, now it's Lieutenant Colonel Lance Fry? It was a degree that he didn't have. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta have a you gotta have an advanced degree in public health or a doctor of medicine or a doctor of osteopathic medicine. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, so um, so Doctor Fry is uh, is it what's his rank? Is it lieutenant colonel? Am I thinking yes. of that? Okay, so that correct. Um, yeah, so, his credentials he received through the, the military, and so mm-hmm. he he meets all the the standards. He seems like a straight shooter. So um, he is now officially the um, director of the Department of Health. And then Carrie... He is is a physician by training. Right. Yes, right. Uh, And then uh, Carrie Sutton Hodges at 
the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. I don't know anything about her. I knew Terry White fairly well. Well, and she was right. She was second in command under Terry White. And so really? she's another person who's a, a, a standing staple in the mental health arena. And so having her appointed as uh, the director of that agency is definitely a good thing because she has um, that institutional knowledge of the department. Nice. That's good to hear because I really liked Terry White and I was really um, displeased that she didn't, you know, that the governor did not retain her. I felt like she did a great job there. Well, I, you know, I, we haven't heard much or anything from, um, from Miss Sutton Hodges. So I'm looking forward to working with them and, and finding out more. Okay. On that note, then. So we had a number of headlines concerning Epic Charter Schools this week, um, all kind of around the same thing, right? So we, as I think listeners probably know, Epic is the largest charter school in the state. They receive a ton of money from the state and a ton more this year because everyone's gone virtual. I know a bunch of people that have put their kids in Epic um, this year. And there was an audit of Epic's funding. And it came out that basically the state auditor inspector general, Cindy Bird, said Epic um, incorrectly received or spent $11 million um, a couple of different ways. And so the state board of education met on Monday, I think, and voted to give Epic 60 days to pay back that $11 million. And then the and next, Andy, it's yeah. a range of things that they say that Epic spent the money on. And so in um, Auditor Bird's findings, she mentioned that there was money spent on teachers who teach for Epic that are teaching kids in California, that some of the <laughs> dollars went towards like advertising for their expansion into another state. And so it's just really... Um, what word do I want to use? It's it's fascinating right now to to read all of the loopholes that they were able to utilize these funds to do because I think the biggest challenge you're seeing is that what they did wasn't necessarily illegal either because there's not a lot of clarity in how the law is written on the ways that they spent the money. Yeah, yeah, that's. The I you know so many things like this in government are are indeed fascinating um, that it's like well uh, this doesn't seem to be legal I don't think it's also illegal but it just seems sketchy let's ask for the money back uh, and Epic of course has pushed back and they've said hey we want we want to see the data let's see what the audit like we want to see the documents that the auditor is looking at and we want to check their math basically and they believe that they that the, their math will come out differently, um, which is concerning, um, if that's the case. I mean, I think we all expect that Epic's going to come back and say, oh, no, we only really owe you back, like, $4 million. We Our audit found uh, $7. That's right, yeah. With, uh, I've yeah. got a tenner, but I'm going to need 3 bucks change. That's right. <laughs> uh, but the with, most fascinating part to me was also the news about uh, the appointment to the state 
Charles. Oh, yes. Luke, yeah, dude, this is all crazy. I forgot all about that, Bailey. Where yes. There was a family member. Go ahead, go ahead, Andy. No, I was going to say that the statewide virtual charter school board. So they met the following day and voted the process to begin ending, terminating the contract that the board has with Epic. And there was one no vote. <laughs> one person that voted no. And it came out that that person is the aunt of the CEO of Epic. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. yes. Which seems like a conflict of interest. Well, and Carmen from the Oklahoma and, and maybe a, a few other journalists did some further digging on it to find out that although she's saying, oh, he's a distant relative, we're not close. She had Facebook posts to him saying, happy birthday, auntie loves you, I'm sending you a card in the mail and all these other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but they're trying to make it seem like there's no conflict of interest because there's distance, although there is a linkage because she's like his grandmother's half sister or something. Yeah, so it's like a, yeah, it's like a great aunt. A yeah. Close relationship. Happy birthday. Auntie loves you. I'm sending you a card. There's $11 million inside. Don't spend it all, don't spend it all in one place. One of those cards, it has a little sleeve for the money, right? But yeah. Like it's $11 million it's, instead of like five. Yeah. It's a really thick. It's like a brick. It's just wild um, that like you're trying to make this argument that like, oh, there's no conflict of interest when there's clearly evidence. Oh, we lost Bailey all of a sudden. But to finish Bailey's thought is when there's clearly evidence that uh, they are related. And I will say, if you're on Facebook, you're probably friends with some distant relatives and you are, they may wish you happy birthday on occasion, right? Like I, my, I have my, both of my great aunts, I think I'm friends with on Facebook. And if they might write happy birthday, we don't, in our family personally send cards that distance, but to each family their own, right? And regardless, like regardless there's a familiar relationship there, right? Like maybe it is distant enough that they felt comfortable with it, but in the eyes of the public. But it's illegal. Yeah. Because, and, and that was the interesting piece is that the speaker's office realized that they didn't know that that connection was there. Right. So that's what they're claiming is that they didn't know that relationship is there. They're going to do some investigations to see uh, what to do as next steps because that they mentioned that they when people are nominated they hope that they would disclose any conflict of interest right. or would step down and acknowledge that and so it's a really interesting situation to where um our state government is going to have to do a better job of doing that research and digging and not assuming good intent and best will of, of folks for moments like this here's a proposal Maybe instead of using those resources to try and kick people off Medicaid, we could use those resources to make sure that when people are apported to uh, state boards by um, our elected leaders, that they don't have conflict. Like we should flip around the honor system, right? We should let people have health insurance on the honor system, but not let them serve on a state board overseeing tens of millions of dollars. Maybe not do that on the honor system. Well, it's, I mean, that's the, one idea. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. The The other night I was watching an um, episode of The West Wing while I was cooking dinner. It's the one from season one or two where they're trying to nominate someone at the Supreme Court, right? Scott will probably remember the name of the episode. But regardless, 
they are they've vetted this guy they are ready to announce it and then they find out something about them and it i thought about the same situation because there's not the same level of vetting that occurs at the state level right and i get that there are a ton of boards and commissions and you don't have the resources to vet everybody um, and maybe that's legitimate but it just seemed ironic that that the speaker's office was like oh man well we I would, have thought, I would have thought that she told me that her favorite nephew was one of the founders of Epic Charter. It seems like, a, you know, we, we trust these people, and then we just find this out on Facebook. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it is, but you know what? But we, we can't be expanding Medicaid because, you know, then people, then people are going to try and get that free health care, you know? I mean, it's just... <laughs> but, you know, I will say that I am appreciative of this collaborative effort among state officials and statewide officials in attacking this problem and really mm -hmm. getting to the root of it. Because sometimes people get stuck into an ideological viewpoint of, oh, we need choice, but this is a different situation where there's a possible um, abuse and misuse of our public dollars that we're hoping should be used for our public school system and bettering our children, right? And mm -hmm. so this is a really um, awesome moment in governance where we see um, the state auditor, we see the uh, state superintendent, and we're even seeing the uh, attorney general's office um, intervene to to stop any kind of abuses of this nature. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this could be the this be the. I don't think this is the end of the story. I mean, AG Hunter's imported uh, has a, appointed a, a special counsel um, to kind of review Melissa the findings. Houston. Yeah, to review the to review the findings of the audit, and then I'm I mean I'm curious to see if uh, if if she turns up anything else. Um, it wouldn't shock me if she did. Um, there's this this is a story that's not. There's a lot of people have been kind of making uh casting aspersions if you will on epic for a while um and i think that this is uh you know they've they've found something they're going to grab onto and i don't think this is going away yeah and to be clear the legislature uh senator sharp i think right um had said like there's some stuff going down it's not he, okay he we took should... the sword for this moment to happen like, yeah and they sued him right like and which the old adage of and lost by the way that's right but you know the old adage of me thinks though does protest too much like seemed to be the case in the beginning where he was like hey uh i think they're doing bad stuff and they were like we sue you that's like why don't you just say no and like I'll let them come in like if you're not worried about it what's the big deal clearly they're worried about it clearly this is why well andy i think this is the most important time for the investigation to happen because we're in the middle of a pandemic and there's so much, uh, what word do I want to use? Um, there's a lot of complications in the public, uh, public school system right now, right? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so many parents are trying to figure out what their options are going to be for their children. And we may see an expansion of school choice options for children because parents are looking for virtual options for their kids and many parents have turned to epic because they're 
the most known in the state, right? And so it's really important now that the legislature uh, get a handle on adequate regulation around school choice to ensure that we're not seeing further abuses um, in the future and to make sure that our dollars are being spent in the way they're supposed to be to help kids. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, well, on that note, I think we should, I think we should end on that note. Also, just as an aside, I recommend listeners you go read the non-doc article about Mike Christian and Mickey Dollins that are running for that seat. Both of those men have held that seat previously. Dollins, of course, is the incumbent. Uh, but there's some really great retail politics stories in there. Mickey Dollins helped a woman catch a possum at her house while he was out knocking doors. Um, it's really salt of the earth. Um, uh, these guys trying to run for election in a important house district and really caring about their constituents. Scott and Bailey, thank you both for being here today. Wouldn't miss it for the world. Thank you. Listeners, uh, please don't forget to subscribe and rate the podcast if you haven't already. If you have, thank you very much. Uh, reminder that tomorrow, October 17th, if you haven't listened to this before 10 a.m. on the 17th, we will be hosting our first virtual Civic Saturday gathering tomorrow it'll be on our facebook and our youtube channels even if you listen to this afterwards go back and watch it the video will be there it'll be an hour long chris weiser of sugar free all stars will be doing music for us scott and i will be there and uh some of our other colleagues from generation citizen it should be a great event um we will have more in the future as well let's pod this is a production of let's fix this it's produced by scott bailey and me we are a member of the mostly harmless media network uh, and our theme music is a song called rhino funk by artist so down and folks before i let you go a reminder that decisions are made by those who show up don't forget to show up and vote if you've already voted this year thank you go tell your friends make sure they know to vote too have a great week